1: Your host is Nick Moran, and this is the Full Ratchet.
0: This is Nick Moran back with episode 33 of the Full Ratchet. As promised, we bring the biggest angelist syndicate leader, Gil Panchina, on the program today to better understand what syndicates are, why he's running syndicates instead of a venture fund, how the investment process works through syndicates, how he's able to crowdsource and triage deal flow, evaluation, and diligence, and why entrepreneurs often choose Gil to lead instead of a VC. There are quite a few gems of wisdom throughout this interview, so I hope you enjoy it. Here's my interview on The Syndicate. Today, Gil Pencina joins us from San Francisco. He's a veteran of some of the tech giants that have become household names and now spends a great deal of time angel investing as the largest syndicate leader on AngelList. Gil, it's been exciting for me to become involved in your deal making community, and I really appreciate you joining us today.
1: Well, thanks, Dick. It's great to have the support, and I'm hoping I can uh, keep your listeners entertained.
0: <laughs> I'm sure that won't be a problem. Can you start us off by walking us through your background in tech and how you got involved in angel investing?
1: So I moved out here in 97. Uh, and. Joined eBay fairly early on. So that was my first real startup prior to that. I had done a couple of smaller tech startups on my own. I'm an engineer by background. So joined eBay in 98 and uh, was there for a number of years. And then went and ran a spin-off of Wikipedia and left called Wikia, left there and helped start Fastly, uh, left there to help start Vouch. So I'm sort of one of these people that whenever I get some free time, I'm trying to start a company. <laughs> um, you know, of all the bad habits to have, I guess it's not the worst one in the world. In my spare time, I really liked talking to entrepreneurs and, and learning about new ideas. And so back in late 98, early 99, I started angel investing literally just as a way to, to sort of network and meet people and and learn and have since done almost 100 investments from 98 to today until Angelus came along. It was me just out there writing checks to people.
0: You said ninety eight ninety nine was the first investment. When did you yep. full-time switch over from operator to angel investor?
1: Uh, I'm not sure I have. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, the syndicate stuff we're doing now is slowly taking over my life, but uh, I still help a couple of companies that I founded fairly actively as well. It's just that angel investing is taking up more and more of the 100 hours a week
0: So you said 100 investments, which is just incredible. But can you touch on the performance of your portfolio and some of the exits that worked out well?
1: Sure. I think companies from the portfolio include Evite and PayPal and Military.com and LinkedIn back in the old days. And more recently, companies like Indiegogo and AngelList and Fastly and Wealthfront, to name a few, we just put a bunch of money into BP, which is uh, really one of those sort of classic rocket ships. So it's been—it's uh, funny. I, I always have to remember that I—I I mentioned like ten awesome ones, <laughs> and there were ninety that I wish I could forget. So you know, one of the things I always tell people if they're thinking about doing this is don't plan to invest in one company or five. Try to do at least twenty. Sort of set a budget for yourself like I did in the early days and say, okay, if, if I was going to put a certain amount of money into 20 companies, what is that amount of money that you know, I can afford to lose? Because my argument is if you do one or five, the odds of you losing all your money is actually quite high.
0: Right. And do you tend to reserve capital for follow-ons as well or do you take sort of that initial interest and then focus your efforts elsewhere?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, unlike a fund, you know, as an angel, you don't really reserve money. Some deal will come in and then later on a, a VC will invest. And you rarely actually get pro rata rights as an angel. A lot of times I've found that the venture capitalists find a way to sort of, quote unquote, screw you out of it. Yep. But it's not like I would reserve money for it. If it showed up, I would have to look at my checking account and say, okay, you know, how much is this investment? And how much do, money do I have in the bank right now? And do I want to do this or not? But I, I've I've actually been very disappointed by how many times I did not have a chance as an angel to invest in follow-on rounds, and that's why the syndicate is fairly aggressive about asking for pro rata rights and trying to get them so we have those sorts of options.
0: Gotcha. And I've read some snippets from your past about choosing not to raise a fund and instead... Keeping sort of your angel approach. Can you talk about why you didn't raise a formal venture fund?
1: Yeah, I mean, my joking answer was always I totally would have raised a venture fund if it wasn't for the fact that it involved lawyers and accountants and family offices, three <laughs> people I don't like. Um, but, you know, the reality is the thing I enjoyed about investing was meeting interesting people and getting a chance to help them. And I could do that with my, you know, five or 10 or $25,000 check. I didn't need a million dollar check to do it. And so all of that administrative burden that came with opening a fund and just felt like a lot of work that wasn't necessarily very beneficial to what I liked doing and what I was good at. I think the difference with Angelus with the syndicates now is that I'm not just helping me. I'm helping now 2000 people. Yep. Who are able to get in on deals with us and we are starting to find ways to help those 2,000 people in turn help companies. And so you know, we're really trying to build this, this uprising where the angels can come together as a group and be more effective and more successful both at getting into good deals and also at, at actually helping companies become successful.
0: Is part of the reason why you're focused on AngelList because there's less overhead and legal requirements, uh, side documents and such, because they have more of a platform and some standardized approaches?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it's a truism in internet startup land, which is if you make things easier, more people will do it more often. So AngelList has certainly made it very easy to essentially launch your own venture fund anyone can start a syndicate and then start investing and see who will follow them. That doesn't necessarily mean they'll get into good deals or have good judgment. So you have to sort of, you know, it's a market like any other market. You have to evaluate each deal as it comes in and decide what you want to do. So it it, it did certainly make it easier for me to do something I would have done anyway. And then, frankly, just the number of people involved has been incredibly gratifying to me. I mean, the amount of email I get from people who are thanking me or offering to help or, or going out of their way to help without me even asking has really been remarkable and is one of the wonderful things about it.
0: Yeah. So Gil, we have a number of entrepreneurs in the audience and a majority are investors that may be operating at a local level, maybe doing equity crowdfunding. Just so that we're all on the same page, can you give us an overview of the syndicate approach on List and then how you're using syndicates with your group
1: right so syndicates come out of the crowdfunding law and the crowdfunding law basically said if you're an accredited investor you and up to 99 of your friends can pile in together into a spv or a special purpose vehicle like an llc and you can all put money into that LLC, and then that LLC can turn around and write a single check to the startup and not cause a bunch of problems for the startup that happens if they get over 100 investors. There are a bunch of reasons in other regulatory parts of the of the federal laws where you don't really want to have 100 or 200 or 500 shareholders. So a lot of entrepreneurs wouldn't want a $1,000 check from me because it's too much work and paperwork relative to the value. Yep. Um, what Angelist does with the syndicate is it lets me say, I am investing in this startup. If you would like to join me, you can click here to join. All the documents are done through DocuSign. All the paperwork is electronic. All the money transfers through ACH or wire transfers. So there's no checks being mailed in. And Angelist helps facilitate collecting all the checks, putting them into one LLC that they run. And they actually have a professional fund manager who takes care of it. So I'm not. I'm not the one holding the checks, which is good. I don't really want that responsibility. <laughs> um, and then that LLC, in turn, will write a check to the startup, and they get a single check from a big group of people. So that's what a syndicate is. I now run about a dozen different syndicates on AngelList. And the reason for that is I view this investment opportunity as more like Fidelity, or Vanguard than like being a venture fund. And what I mean by that is, you know, I'm an investor in Greylock and one of the Matrix funds and one of the more David Owl funds and a few other ones. And I write a big check into I don't know what, right? I'm basically trusting generally, you know, six dorky white guys in blue jackets to <laughs> take that money and invest it in stuff and make me money. Yep. You know, in the Angelus syndicate context, you may back me or, or one of my funds for a thousand dollars or a hundred thousand dollars per deal, but it's per deal and each deal you get to look at and evaluate and make a decision whether or not you want to back out or write a check. And so what we saw is different people have different hypotheses about what's going to make money. So rather than just having a fund where you follow Gill, we've tried to build market oriented funds. So we have a. Financial services fund. We have a SaaS fund for software as a service. We have a marketplace fund. We have an ad tech fund. We have an ed tech fund. We have a Bitcoin fund. We have an internet of things fund and people can self select into essentially a mailing list by backing us in those funds, see that deal flow and then make their own choices. And so, you know, rather than you getting flooded with deals of every possible color and flavor, you're able to sort of pick the type of deals you're interested in and and evaluate a smaller group. So we just think it's more efficient. And then I've been recruiting partners to help me manage these various funds, and I'm still looking for partners on fintech and ad tech and some of the other ones as well.
0: There are a number of established venture capitalists and angels that run syndicates on AngelList, but you seem to have the most significant following and have put the most money to work through these syndicates. How do you attribute the growth of your group and how have you achieved this level of angel investment in such a short time?
1: Uh, clean living. <laughs> uh, you know, in all honesty, I, I'm not entirely sure I really know why. But, you know, I've been asked the question enough times that I've had to, to, uh, to try to think about it. And I can attribute success or, or some of the success to, to a few different things. I don't really know what the right answer actually is. When I look at all of my peers who were angel investors in 98 to 2005, every single one of them is a venture capitalist now except me. You know, whether it's Reed Hoffman or Josh Koppelman or Jeff Clavier or uh, Dave Wharton or – I mean, you just you yep. go down the list of all the people I was investing with in that era. They're all VCs now. Um, and I seem to have been the one holdout who didn't get the memo. So <laughs> – so from that standpoint, what what it means is when I went on AngelList, I was one of the few early syndicate members who actually had a five plus year track record. I had a you know a fifteen year track record, and I think that gave me some advantages. Um, the other part of it is you know a lot of my friends and, and peers on the syndicate list, you know, people like Jason Calcanis or Tim Ferriss or Elad Gill, who are all great investors are also busy and have a lot of other stuff going on, and so I was one of the few, if not the only one, who sort of made this something I was willing to put 40 hours a week into. So, good timing, good preparation, lots of hard work, a little luck, some combination of that is my guess.
0: And can you talk about how many backers you have in total and how much money has been put to work, as well as the average deal size of investments?
1: Yeah, so we uh, we have over two thousand backers now, and my current forecast is that we'll, and that's you know up from zero, essentially a year ago, and I expect to get to about ten thousand by the end of this year, which is really a, a crazy number. Wow. Um, yeah, that's usually what I say.
0: You're going to need and, some fund manager skill.
1: <laughs> yeah, we we need a lot. We need a lot of help. And we have people all over the place helping in a variety of different ways. So that's the backer size. We were just getting started in Q1 and started, you know, doing this more seriously in, in Q2 and later through the year. And last year, we invested in total about 8.7 million dollars. By comparison, I think we're going to do three million this month in January. So, my current forecast is we'll do somewhere between 30 and 50 million dollars of investing this year. Wow. uh, Which is a pretty healthy growth clip and quite exciting.
0: Maybe we can talk about this a bit later, but is it beginning to creep into a series A or series B with the amounts uh, escalating to that level?
1: Yeah, we've actually led two series A's, you know, written term sheets, priced them. We've Put money into a B and a C, and you know we're very active in the seed stage as well our Our typical check size is two hundred thousand five hundred thousand and a million dollars. We've done a number of checks at each of those sizes. Our biggest deal was b p where we put two point eight million into a uh, very large round led by foundation.
0: You mentioned before that you've created this group It's a very innovative model of evaluation and sort of triaging your deal flow. Can you talk about how this works and how you get your evaluation and diligence completed?
1: So each of the teams, you know, SaaS, FinTech, AdTech, have their own team that are out looking for deals and, and evaluating deals. Uh, I get now a crazy amount of inbound because my syndicate, uh, the one with my name on it, is the number one syndicate on AngelList. Our late stage syndicate is the third largest. Our SaaS syndicate is the fourth largest. So when you go to AngelList looking for funding, we show up awfully often, and that has certainly brought in a lot of deal flow. And then we have volunteer list volunteers on our mailing list, who also help source deals, look at deals, evaluate deals, you name it. So there's the whole team nowadays. You know, deck will come in, we'll ask for some metrics, and, you know, there's a team of people out there looking at it.
0: So I've talked to a lot of angel group leaders and angels, as well as venture capitalists, about the time it takes from introduction to an investment is made or eventually a pass. Can you talk about the amount of time it's taking you and your team from uh, the time you meet an entrepreneur until you make an investment?
1: We've made decisions in a day and we've made decisions in three months. Like any VC, you're looking at a, a combination of intangibles, product, traction, team, market, idea. And sometimes you meet someone and you go, oh my God, that's amazing. And you're amazing. And you know, when can I write a check? And a lot of times you meet people and, you know, my joke is it's sort of like dating. Most of the time you go out on a date and, you know, you got to think about it and you call some friends and you find out a little bit about the person. You want to meet them a few more times. And so it really varies, but we try to be very efficient. We try to do a lot of it by email. Uh, A lot of the deals we're looking at already have data. And so we can sort of run a lot of analytics on the data without bothering you as the entrepreneur. And that seems to People really seem to appreciate that.
0: While we're on entrepreneurs, you have a very positive track record of relationships with entrepreneurs and at times a a polarizing track record for relationships with some VCs and some insider VC rounds, so to speak.
1: What I would say is I, I like disruption, right? I like change. I'm constantly trying new things. and So a lot of the things we're doing are inherently disruptive to venture capitalists. Much like a lot of angel party deals that were happening a year or two ago pushed a lot of VCs out of doing sort of seed or early A into doing, you know, larger later stage checks. And so I think what we're doing is really just a further pushing venture capitalists into the larger check zone while letting angels become empowered to sort of do the earlier stage seed and series A stuff. And from that perspective, you know, I think everyone is really excited about what we're doing. And I meet with a lot of VCs who are trying to figure out how to work with us and what it means to work with us and how they should think about us and all that sort of good stuff.
0: Ever had a situation where you uh, took over the lead from a venture capitalist that was trying to lead around?
1: Yeah, we we have definitely outbid a VC for a deal, and that's great. And, you know, honestly, that happens all the time, right? It's a free market, and... uh Entrepreneurs are always looking for the best deal they can get. So that's really nothing special other than it used to be that angels had the firepower to do that for $200,000. And now we have the firepower to do it for $2 million.
0: And I've read that you put maybe less focus on price and maybe pro rata than some other investors. Is that the case? And if so, why?
1: Well, so we obviously would like to get a good price and we would like to get pro rata. But the real difference, if you think about it, is the, the six dorky white guys in blue jackets ultimately have this whole bureaucratic inertia of an LP agreement and a set of things they're trying to do. And they have all these things that when you're an entrepreneur, they'll tell you, well, we need to have pro rata and we need to have 20 percent ownership. It's a rule. And, and I go, it's a rule where And they're like, it's a rule. Right. We have this ownership percentage thing and we have this board seat thing and we have this other thing and we need veto rights on this and we need, you know, information rights on that. And uh, as an example, we, we had one deal where we were bidding against a VC and the VC had all these control provisions and things they wanted. And the entrepreneur was really sort of frothing at the mouth at how much control he was giving up and had called me and I said, you know, those things have value, right? I understand why the investor wants those things. So I'm happy to make you an offer that doesn't have any of those things, but the price would actually be a little lower because I'm taking more risk. But if you want to have more control and you're willing to accept a little lower price, I'm willing to make that trade with you. Sure. Um, and he ended up deciding to go with us and trade a 5 or 10% lower price for a whole bunch of things that he found very unpalatable about venture investors. And so, you know, what I tell people is we don't have that rule book. We don't have those LP agreements. We don't have Stanford or CalPERS breathing down our neck asking why we deviated from our rule book. We're much more entrepreneurial and we're much more entrepreneur friendly because everyone on the team is entrepreneurs and has been at startups or run startups. And, you know, so we view the world the same way they do and we understand what's important to them. And we throw out our rule book when we have to.
0: Gotcha. So pro rata wouldn't be a requirement then for an investment, depending on what the price is and some other provisions.
1: Yeah. It's, you know, my joke is investors ask for lots of things. That's one of the things we ask for.
0: Doesn't yeah, mean you're going to get it.
1: <laughs> life is about trade-offs.
0: Yeah. You've had situations in the past where you've been recapped to zero in a downstream financing from a venture capitalist. Can you talk mm-hmm. about how that occurs? Maybe a story that or a situation that you've been in, and what early stage angels can do to prevent that from happening.
1: Honestly, there's not much you can do to prevent it. So, your company goes out and raises money, and it's growing, and it goes out and raises more money, and then something goes horribly wrong. It could be uh, Vidi, which was growing like literally to the moon at some astronomical tens of thousands of percent a year rate. Until Facebook turned off videos in the feed yep. and their growth rate literally plummeted, you know, within days to almost zero. And they're sitting on this big venture capital round with lots of money. And the VC all of a sudden realizes they're an idiot. Um, <laughs> it happens. You know? Yeah. I mean, you, you can't predict the future. That's, that's why it's, you know, they joke it's a, it's a risk business. So in those sorts of instances, a lot of times what will happen is when the company starts running out of money, the vc has a veto on any future financings and so they get to play hardball and say well you want to raise more money and not go bankrupt great what's in it for me because i already look like an idiot and so you'll see things like the friendster cramdown round where after kleiner had put in a ton of money into friendster they turned around you know i think the friendster valuation was in the you know 50 million 100 million 200 million dollar range and they turned around and organized a Three million dollar financing at two pre, wow. where they effectively bought sixty percent of the company for three million dollars and crammed everyone else out, including you know management, and Jeez. and they could do that because the alternative was bankruptcy. Because they said, well you know any other offer we're going to veto, and we can because we're VCs, it's what we do. Right. So the only thing that saves you on a deal like that as an investor is if you have pro rata rights, you can at least buy your share to keep your ownership percentage. If you're an employee, like my friends were, you're screwed and there's absolutely nothing you can do about it.
0: Either let the company die or accept the uh, down round, huh?
1: Well, you get screwed or you get screwed. Right? <laughs> yeah.
0: Okay. That's crazy. Do VCs always ask for that veto? Yep. How much you can do in that case then?
1: Well, there are people who go to non-VCs, right? There's people who do convertible debt and never raise another round. There's people who come to me and, you know, where that's the important thing to them. And there are people who who raise debt like uh, SoftLayer, which IBM bought for over a billion dollars, never had any VC. They leased all their equipment and used that money to pay for everything, right? And they were hand in mouth for years growing at whatever rate the banks would lend them borrow money at.
0: There are alternative strategies than the continual fundraises to Series Z. Nope. At this point, if you're a VC, you've heard of Carta. You've probably even accepted securities from a portfolio company on the platform. It feels like every new company is using Carta, and there's already 16,000 VC-backed companies on the platform. They also offer tools and services for VCs like Fund Administration. Carta has an army of fund accountants delivering high-quality service and dedicated teams of engineers, constantly improving the functionality of their user-friendly investor platform with in-app quarterly reporting, real-time fund metrics, LP portals, and more. It's also easy to switch from an existing fund administrator or to augment your in-house team with their service. Learn more about their services at carta.com forward slash investors. In this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. So, Gil, what's the best way for listeners to connect with you?
1: You can find me on Facebook. You can email me. My email is gilpincina, G I L P E N C H I N A, at gmail.com. And uh, you can find me on AngelList. So, um, I get lots and lots of people reaching out through all three.
0: Well, Gil, it's a pleasure being part of the team, and thanks so much for the time today. Uh, I'm sure your insights will be really valuable for the listeners. And look forward to hearing more about what your syndicates do in the coming years. Thank you, Nick. A big thanks to Gil Pencina for joining us on the show. Let's recap some of the key takeaways. The first is on syndicate origination. Gil talked about how syndicates emerged from the JOBS Act, which allowed an investor and up to 99 other investors to group their investment into a special purpose vehicle like an LLC. This permits one check to be written to the startup as opposed to 99 separate checks. And Angelist, in particular, then handles all the electronic documentation and financial facilitation such that the syndicate members don't have to each spend the same overhead and time on the transaction that they often would. The second major takeaway is why not to raise a venture fund? Gil has the network resources and background of many VCs out in the valley, yet he opted for the road less traveled and did not raise a traditional venture fund. Gil mentioned that he probably would have raised a fund if it did not involve all the lawyers, accountants, and family offices. And there's also an amount of bureaucratic inertia that accompanies a fund. Certain guidelines about percentage of ownership or control provisions might be required by LPs for every investment. And realizing that he didn't need a $1 million check via a fund to make startup investments, Gil could avoid these burdens and limitations. Of course, more recently, with new legislation and the evolution of angelist syndicates, he can now work with a group of 2,000 angels, providing access to well-vetted deals and getting the benefit of a larger pool of smart individuals to help companies become successful so effectively he can exploit the benefits of a venture fund without suffering the commonly cited challenges. And his co-investor followers always have the final decision on investments that they make. So as opposed to a blind bet on Gil, it's more of an informed vote of confidence. Investors can say, I want to monitor Gil's activity, process, and deal flow, but I still reserve the final decision to invest or not. And we haven't even talked about the role of the entrepreneur. In this situation, without hard and fast rights and control provisions, the syndicate investment allows more flexibility, speed, and founder-friendly terms. The third and final takeaway is the recap to zero. This is a big watch out, and I'm glad we had Gil on the program with as many years of experience to weigh in on it. As discussed with Joanne Wilson, this can happen in a predatory fashion where the startup is not experiencing extreme hardship. Yet a VC mandates a recap to zero in order to take more equity. When early stage investors don't have any dilution protections or a pro rata in place, they can be completely watered out. However, the scenario we talked about today was related to a situation where there is no choice. The startup either dies or all the previous investors agree to the recap. Due to external market factors or otherwise, the valuation of a startup may plummet mandating an extreme down round. Now, clearly, there are external factors that cannot be controlled, like in Gil's example, where Facebook shut off the ability to embed videos in the newsfeed and effectively ended the business. And his story here does illustrate a situation for early stage investors to look out for when evaluating startups. And that leads into our tip of the week called the channel choke. In many cases, we see a startup that is exploiting a trend or riding a thermal, and they've built a feature or product that is exclusively used within one platform. And there is a sole player that owns the platform and its entire distribution channel. A couple off the top of my head include Amazon, Apple iOS, and Google search engine marketing. Yes, there are competitors to these companies, but with each, they have created a market and have total control over their channel of distribution and ultimately the offerings that will be allowed through that channel. I have seen situations where people build businesses on Amazon with no brick and mortar that are ended overnight because Amazon may change their commission structure or affiliate program. Or maybe someone has built an app for iOS that delivers a steady 50K per month in revenue when iOS upgrades their operating system or app requirements. The established app may no longer work, so until it can be redeveloped and approved, the revenue disappears. Meerkat, which has been in the news and we've been discussing over at Venture Weekly, has built much of their user base by using Twitter's platform. When Twitter disabled their functionality a few weeks ago, it was a big story and Meerkat was in a tough spot. Now they have built their own social platform, thus Twitter is a user acquisition strategy, not an ongoing channel necessity but this illustrates the effects of channel choke or the captive channel and a reliance on one distribution method controlled by one party. Of course, there are other external drivers aside from company decisions. Jerry Newman on episode 20 discussed a legislative driver in online advertising that could destroy the industry overnight. In my former job in M&A, we monitored government and legislative drivers very closely. Of course, from a risk standpoint, but even more so for opportunities. New law doesn't just eliminate value, it can also create tremendous opportunity. So the message here is to look out for channel choke or captive channel when evaluating risks for an investment. Is the startup relying on the policies of one company in order to succeed? Is there a likelihood that this one company may enact policy that will eliminate the startup's business model? these focused platform technologies can be extremely lucrative and very fast. But if an investor's time to exit is eight to 10 years and the incumbent likely views it as a threat, the startup and your investment may disappear together. While talking about syndicates this week, I was very tempted to include a tip that broke down the advantages and disadvantages of investment approaches. We've talked about the lone wolf, the angel group, the Venture Fund, and now the Syndicate. The natural extension to this conversation is to analyze each group and understand the strengths and weaknesses. The Syndicate approach that Gill is employing clearly exploits advantages of angel groups and venture funds while avoiding some of their drawbacks. But while this is an innovative approach to early stage investing, Syndicates are not without their own limitations. And while a number of you have emailed and asked why I haven't started one, In all honesty, I'm still learning the mechanics and nuances of syndicate investment. It's not that I'm not open to it, but rather, I have to make sure that A, it's a sound decision that fits with my overall investment philosophy, and B, it provides advantages that other approaches don't. On the surface, it's pretty compelling, but it requires more thought and analysis. So to get my head around it, I started putting together a comparison of each of the approaches, and I will do a special segment this week that considers factors like... Decision autonomy, bureaucracy, fees, terms, access to deal flow, et cetera. And I'll attempt to rate the factors for venture funds versus angel groups versus syndicates and of course the lone wolf. So if you're grappling with the decision like I am, stay tuned for the special segment coming up this week. And remember to check out our newest project, Venture Weekly, the top 10 articles of the week written by the venture experts. We have put a lot of time into analyzing social views and user feedback to identify the top trending articles of the week, and then we read the top 40 and pick the 10 must-read articles. If you're out there reading everything and you don't mind some subpar content, this is not for you. If your schedule doesn't allow for this and you'd benefit from the curation and aggregation, then head over to VentureWeekly.net and check it out. I'm a huge fan of feedback, both positive and constructive. So shoot me a note. It's nick at fullratchet.net if you got ideas about ways we can improve the interface. That's it for now. We'll see you next time. And until then, over prepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. Thanks for listening.